Thinking about memories this morning. Don't know how you keep track of your memories. Do you take photos? I would never get into writing a diary. I was never that kind of guy, to be honest. I don't know what you do to keep your memories, to keep track of them. Especially the happy ones. We love to think back over them over the time, don't we? And really remember the good times we spent with people. There's some things that happen that actually a memory of them rattles through the world, doesn't it? Resonates through the world. Do you remember the tsunami that happened on Boxing Day? It's quite hard to forget that one, isn't it? Do you remember where you were on 9-11 when you saw the plane hit the Twin Towers? Moments in history that shudder through time and we can't help but remember them. Most of our memories, most of the things we remember even as a country, only go back a century or so, don't they? Say even Guy Fawkes night, the night that they foiled the plot on Parliament. And now we have bonfire night with um, toffee apples and fireworks. Oh, I love that day. There's Remembrance Day, isn't there? When after years of war, they signed peace in the Treaty of Versailles on the 11th of November. We have poppies, of a minute silence to remember what happened that day. For me, the exodus is like that. The exodus of the people of Israel is a timeless event. It's such a moment in history that will never be forgotten. There's a recent film about it, isn't there? It was remembered by the Jews and non-Jews as a moment that changed the world. Let's turn back in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're looking through quite a big passage, but starting with uh, verses 30 to 41. But we will be going all the way through to chapter 13 and verse 16. The context of this little passage is that God has been working his plan out for the last 80 years. 80 years ago, Moses was born. And God started working towards the freedom of his people. There's been a battle of power recently between God and Pharaoh, where Pharaoh's refusing stubbornly to let the people go. And where God shows them, you need to let these people go. Bringing plague after plague. They are my people. You cannot hold them. Finishing with the final plague that we looked at last week. With his angel of death that went through and killed all the firstborn humans and animals except in any household where they had put blood on the doorposts and the angel of death passed over those houses that happened this very night when we read in verse 31 during the night Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said up leave my people you and the Israelites Go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise they said we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and for gold and for clothing. 
the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And they gave them what they'd asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There was about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil, to honor the Lord for the generations to come. A moment when Jesus, when God is victorious. They've been slaves in Egypt now, kept there against their will. And this, the Exodus, is the moment that God is victorious. God has heard the cry of his people. He's remembered his promises to them that I will give you the land of Canaan. He set a rescue plan in motion through Moses and nothing could stop him. Not even the world superpower of the Pharaoh. God is mighty to save. When he chooses to rescue, that's exactly what he does. In the end, Pharaoh commands them to leave. Please go. He realizes that the God of heaven is not one to be messed with. So much so that he even asks that God to bless him. The Egyptians are so fed up of these plagues, of the pain and suffering they're going through, that they urge the Egyptians to the, urge the Israelites to go as well. So much so that when the Israelites ask them for gold and silver and clothing, they give them tons of it. The Egyptians give them plunder on request. There's been a battle of power, and God has won that battle. He is triumphant, which is shown with this plunder to prove it. Like you would if you won a a war, you take plunder away. In this case, these plagues, this battle of power between God and Pharaoh, results not in the escape of the Israelites, but the exodus of the Israelites. Triumphantly, with all the plunder to prove that God won. God was victorious. I just want us to get our heads around the scale and the magnitude of this for a minute. And the only way I can get it into my head is that God rescued the northeast. Think of it like that for a minute. God rescued the northeast. It was actually the northeast of Egypt. The Israelites lived in the land of Goshen, which was up in the northeast region of Egypt. When he numbers 600,000 men, that the way they numbered in those days was men were counted as those of fighting age, those that could carry a weapon into battle. And so when you add on the women and the children and the men that couldn't fight, a good estimate is about two and a half million people left, exit, left Egypt. Then there was others with them too, Egyptians who had had enough, who saw that this God was maybe the real God, that maybe they should follow him. 
they estimate that that could be tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people as well. Somewhere in the region of two and a half million people left Egypt. That is staggering, isn't it? That gives you the perspective. The population of the northeast of England, from Northumberland, including Newcastle, Sunderland, Durham, down to Middlesbrough even, is just over two and a half million people. 2,597,000 people. Imagine every single person that is in the whole of the northeast of England leaving together. Packing up quickly and leaving all in the same direction. All following, not Moses, following God's lead in the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. That was baffling. Imagine, imagine visiting the area afterwards and just seeing homes, farms, whole cities abandoned. When you look, look into the homes, you see they didn't even take everything with them. There's still chairs and tables there. There's still TVs on the wall or whatever they watched in those days. They just grabbed their clothes, a quick suitcase, and left. That's more than just the odd ghost town, isn't it? That's a region, the northeast, just been abandoned as the Israelites leave Egypt. The northeast of Egypt was emptied. Two and a half million people on the move. Can you imagine the size of that camp when they stopped for the night and put up tents? That is vast, isn't it? Can you imagine the miles of people as you looked across them, from front to back? I have no idea how big an area that would contain. No wonder God had to use a pillar of fire and of crowd to show them which direction to walk. It was huge. Later in the story when God sends manna and quail to feed the Israelites, when he needs to provide water for them, that's more than a hundred little birds. That's more than a few crumbs on the floor of bread. That's enough to feed two and a half million people. And this is the scale that God works in. The mind-blowing scale is the scale that God works in. It's not the few, but the many. And Christianity is not a niche market. There's not just a few Christians in the world. God's nation here, the Israelites, numbered in the millions. God's people today across the world are estimated in the billions. God's people throughout time, that's got to be in the trillions. God's rescue plan is not small scale. It's mind-blowing scale. He wants to rescue, and when he puts his mind to it, when he decides to do it, he can rescue whole regions, whole nations, millions, billions, and trillions of people. And the question it makes me ask of myself and of us, is, are we content? Are we comfortable with our church? Is the job done? Genuinely, it's a, it's a lovely church. I love being here. There's great attitudes within it. 
There's loads going on. This morning there's probably just under 250 people here, including all the women and kids and all that kind of thing, however you count it. 250 people is just 0.01% of Sunderland with a rough population of 275,000 people. The 250 people here this morning is just 0.001% of the northeast with two and a half million people. How can we be content? How can we be complacent when in this city there's so much more to do? There's so many more people that need to hear of Jesus Christ. For God to rescue the northeast as it stands today with the population today, there would need to be 1,101 churches in Sunderland of our size. Across the whole of the northeast, there need to be 10,388 churches of our size to reach the whole of the northeast. Is the job done? Our God is a God who has huge plans to rescue millions of people. And sometimes we can just be content with 250. When our ambition is small, we sit back and we say, we've done it, God. We've got a lovely church here. Thank you for blessing us. We'll sit back now and enjoy the ride. God's rescue plan is vast. He is mighty to save. He's achieved it and accomplished it by the death of Jesus Christ. The price paid for each of us paid on the cross. Jesus is victorious over death. The hard work is done. And now it's just the offer for people to believe. The offer for people to trust. The battle of power between God and Satan has already been won. God is already victorious. And the nation, God's people, that he's wanting to take to heaven is still growing. There's still an opportunity to be added to it. There's still an opportunity to put our faith in God and be counted as one of his people. More than that, to be counted as one of his family. I wonder if you need to do that. If you just think coming along to church does the job. Well, actually, the job is done by Jesus. And we become part of that, not by attendance, but by trusting in God. Trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ. And at that point, at that point, we're set on a journey. Not from Egypt to Canaan, but from here to heaven, where we'll spend eternity, the promised land that God has promised to us. Where there'll be no pain, no suffering. It'll be a lovely place in God's presence. And all we need to do is put our trust in Him. I guess a bit like those those people that went along with the Israelites. As they left, there were some extra people. Some extra people who saw that actually this God is real. We don't know where He's going. These Israelites are going quite. But we trust in God. And so we're going to leave too. And that's the option for us, isn't it? That's the opportunity for us to put our faith in God. 
and to set off with the rest of his people around the world and be part of the billions of people today who put their faith in Christ. I wonder if you do that. If you've done that, and if not, please, please put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Exodus was an incredible moment in history. God working to rescue his people. A moment that would be hard to forget, but God wanted to make sure nobody ever forgot. As we go through the rest of chapter 12 and into chapter 13, there's a few things that God institutes, that God asks the Israelites to do, so that they'll always remember this moment. Because over time, over centuries, memories fade. Photos, we keep them. Sometimes we lose them, to be honest. We keep anniversaries, don't we? To remember the day we got married, to remember the day we were born. God asked them to do some things once a year to remember what happened this day of the Exodus. If you looked between verses 43 and 51, you see that there's the Passover meal and its regulations. That's been explained earlier in chapter 12. Where they're asked to take a lamb per household. A lamb that's a year old, that's got no blemishes. And to kill it at twilight. And then prepare it. Eat it in haste, with sandals on their feet and staff in their hand, as though they were also about to go out on the Exodus. A living snapshot of what it was like that first night when the Passover happened. It was a statute that God declared to be repeated every year for all generations. Something Jews still do now. To remember the amazing day that God rescued his people out of Egypt. In the regulations, it it says if you're not an Israelite, then you can't take part. Well, not initially anyway. Because this is not just a thing to do, it's not a cultural thing to do. It's not a festival that anybody joins in on. If you want to join in on this, you need to become part of God's covenant. Only those who put themselves under the covenant of God, as it says here, have all the males in their house circumcised. Once they recognize the promises of God. I want to live under those promises. Shown by becoming circumcised. They're able to celebrate in the Passover. This is a thing for God's people to celebrate. Sacrifice an animal that will save you from death. That's what happened the first Passover night. An image, uh, a foretaste of what would happen on the cross. Jesus Christ is referred to as the Passover lamb. Died on the cross to save us from death. What happened in the Exodus was just showing us what God had planned in the future. Another thing they needed to do was a feast of unleavened bread. Check um, chapter 13, especially verses 3 to 10. Each year, for seven days, no yeast. Not only in any bread, but not to be seen anywhere in the house, in the country. Again, remembering what it was like when they prepared for the Exodus. There was no time for yeast to rise, and so for seven days they ate bread without yeast. 
Do this for seven days each year. Why? Check out verses 8 to 9. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law sign on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Ask to do this. Remember God's power. Remember that God saved you. Remember that you are God's people. There's one more thing he asks them to do. This is not something to be repeated every year. This is something to be repeated any time there is a firstborn human or animal. Stated in verses, God says it in verse 1 of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. You see, during the tenth plague, the firstborn son and animal of every Egyptian died. Except for those who put their trust in the Passover, in the Passover blood of the lamb on their lintel of the door. Except there, there was no death in that household. And so it was a way to remember that God rescued all their firstborn sons even their firstborn animals. When every firstborn is born, set them apart for God. Set them apart as God's. You can redeem them by the sacrifice of a lamb. The redemption of an animal is possible. Is optional, sorry. The redemption of an animal is optional. You must redeem your firstborn son by the sacrifice of a lamb. Do all of these to remember what God did for you that day. Memories are so important, aren't they? And we have things to help us remember what Jesus did for us. The communion that we take, the bread and the wine that we share together on a Sunday morning once a month, but actually every Sunday just in room four, across. Join us whenever you want, every week, 10.30, and we share communion. Why do we do that? We do it to remember. When you eat, when you meet together, do this in remembrance of me. Remember the Lord's death, the sacrifice that he gave for us. That it wasn't just a metaphor, but it was Jesus, Son of God, dying on the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed. The great thing about communion as well is that you share it between you, don't you? And that at that time, everybody is equal. The rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, everybody is equal in Christ. Nothing of our own doing. We all share God's, the, the bread and the wine. We share in Christ's death. It is only that that can bring us forgiveness. And so Christ asks us to do it whenever you meet together to remember him. Another thing they started doing, this happened just after Jesus was, bought, was risen from the dead. They used to 
have their special day as the Sabbath, the Saturday. And yet they moved it onto the day that Jesus rose again. No longer called the Sabbath, but referred to as the Lord's Day. A weekly day set aside to meet with God's people and to celebrate that Jesus is alive. Something to do every week to celebrate that Jesus is alive. Now sometimes we add lots of rules and regulations to that, but I think that's a bit daft. Because in their culture at the time, the day off was Saturday, the day off was the Sabbath. They started to work on a Sunday. They lived in Jewish culture, and yet they made time around work to meet with God's people. Because their priority of the Sunday was to celebrate that Jesus is alive. We're asked to do these things. To remember Christ's death whenever we meet together. And to celebrate each week that Jesus is alive. The Exodus was a great day in history. Amazing day with two and a half million people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest day in history. We should celebrate it. We should remember it. See, the purpose of these rituals is more than our own memory as well. The purpose of these rituals that were instituted here for the Israelites and reflect in the way that we should do communion and celebrate the Lord's Day is to tell the next generation. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me in chapter 12, verse 25 and 26. This is about the Passover. And it says, And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. To tell your children. Check out chapter 13, verses 8 and 9 again. On that day, tell your son, I do this because because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Check out chapter 13, verses 14 to 16. In days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn son, firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the firstborn male of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. God is using this not just so the people that left Egypt could remember, but so that for generation after generation, it would be a chance, it would be an excuse, it would be an opportunity to express what God has done for them. It's the same for communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we do communion, in some ways maybe an odd thing, why do you just eat bread, a little bit of bread together and drink a little bit of wine? A chance, an opportunity to express to our kids 
to express to those around us what God has done for us. This hits home for me because I became a, a dad less than a year ago. And it just smacks with the realization that parents, the task lands with us. You know, we can transfer fear of spiders to our kids. The way that we are scared of spiders follows on to your kids. If you're scared of wasps, you, you learn that, can learn that from your parents and your kids can learn that from you. If you're scared of clowns, you maybe you learn that from your parents. Maybe you'll pass that on to your kids. How about the fear and the love of God who is powerful and yet mighty to save? See, the responsibility is not with Sunday school. It's not with ignition. By sending my kids to Sunday school, I don't absolve myself from my responsibility to Myla. My responsibility is personal. It can't be outsourced or subcontracted to somebody else. Check out the phrasing of verse 8. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me. This is personal. We're called to make disciples, all of us. Something that can't be outsourced and can't be said, well, Dave just needs to do that. We push them in Dave's direction and he makes the Christians. Is that really what we're saying? As we live our lives in the fear and the love of God, that passes on to those around us, to our kids, to others too. To the fact that you are the best person to witness to your friends, to your colleagues, and to your children. Maybe they'll ask the question, why? Why do you eat bread and wine with other Christians? I do this because of what Jesus did for me. Why do you go to church every Sunday? Can't we do something else today? Why do you love going to church so much? I do it because Jesus is alive. Because the greatest news that ever hit this world was on Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's something that's changed my life and that's something I never want to forget. As individuals, we can pass that on to our kids. We can pass it on to the people that say that we work with and say, why do you go to church on Sunday? Isn't it boring? Hopefully it's not boring, but regardless of the reason we come, it's because Jesus is alive. It's I, me, personal, isn't it? Displayed in your life, the way that you live out your faith. And I guess it happens both ways. It works both ways, doesn't it? When the guy next to you at work says, you normally go to church on Sundays. Why, aren't, why didn't you go last week? Why aren't you going anymore? Does it say that shopping, football, my bed, oh, I love my bed. Does it say that my bed is more important to me than the fact that Jesus is alive? What is the message that we give to our friends, our family, our kids? I think what the Bible asks us to do is to prioritize meeting together each Sunday. To let nothing get in the way of celebrating that Jesus is alive. 
as the greatest moment in history that we don't want to forget and that we want to pass on to other people. Let's prioritize meeting together. If at all possible, let's come and share together and celebrate. Let's prioritize sharing communion whenever we can to remember Jesus' death for us on the cross. We're going to share communion tonight at 6 o'clock. Come and join us as we think about Jesus' death for us. We do it every Sunday morning, as I said, 10.30 in room 4. But you don't just need to do it as part of the church here. You could even do it when other Christians come round to your house for a meal. What a lovely opportunity to start the meal by having a bit of bread, having a bit of wine, and sharing together, remembering Christ's death for us on the cross. Could be the first course, couldn't it? Before we get on to everything else. The exodus of the Israelites was amazing. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is life-changing. Life-changing to anybody who believes in it. It's changed my life. I hope it's changed yours and will continue to. And if we celebrate that, Celebrate what Jesus has done. We can be part of passing it on to the next generation. So that it doesn't just remain as 250 people in a building. Having a nice time together. Enjoying each other's company. But that slowly, the 1,101 churches we need in Sunderland starts growing. To reach 275,000 people. That needs to be done through us, doesn't it? Through our personal lives, our personal witness of what Jesus has done for us and saying what he can do for them too. Let's come before God in prayer. Father God, there's moments when we look at your word and we realize that you are bigger than we ever imagined. That you are more powerful than we give you credit. That some of the stories in this Bible not only are real, but are mind-blowing when we realize the scale in which you work. And when you put your mind to saving people, you don't work in hundreds or thousands. You work in millions and billions. We thank you that you love the world. Every single person that lives on this world and the message of Jesus Christ is open to everybody. The opportunity to put their faith in him, to trust him and get eternal life, is open to everyone. God, let us not think small. Let us realize the magnitude of the scale in which you are working. Now that you have set your mind to rescuing all people, bringing all people back to yourself. So Lord, help us put our trust in you first and foremost, and then in the way that we live, we pray that it would reflect into other people's lives. They would see the priority we put in meeting with your people the way that we love to share this bread and wine together, 
Why is it you're doing that? We're doing it because of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us. We could have achieved nothing by ourselves in means of getting to heaven. Even the best amongst us wouldn't have made it to heaven. All of us have fallen. All of us need your forgiveness. And we just want to thank you today for providing that through the death of Jesus on the cross. But we don't want to finish somber. Jesus didn't stay dead. Lord, we thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. That even death itself could not hold Jesus in the grave. Not a sealed tomb, not guards outside it. Not having been crucified and pierced with a spear. Jesus Christ, we thank you that you rose from the dead. Victory has been won. The battle over Satan, you've won that too. And we thank you that you offer eternal life to anybody who puts their faith in you. Father, we long for Sunderland. For the hundreds of thousands of people in Sunderland who don't know you. Who haven't put their faith in you. Who have heard your name and yet just use it as a swear word. Who have heard who you are and think you don't exist. Who have heard about your son and just thought it was a nice story that gives us Christmas and Easter. Lord, we pray for them. That through our lives, through you working in our lives, that they would see you. See that Jesus is the only true saviour of the world and would put their faith in you. Lord, grow your church in this city. Not just this church, but every church. And plant many more churches so that everybody in Sunderland would know that you are the God who saves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.